James is a letter written to the early church dispersed by persecution to say, this is what a Christian looks like. These are the convictions. This is the lifestyle that validates genuine faith. So James is real Christianity, not the claim of it, but the reality of it. And we're beginning in chapter 2 with one of the 60 imperatives. This is the first thou shalt not imperative. This is stop it. If you're a Christian and you make a claim... You need to stop this. This is non-negotiably intolerable to be expressed as a Christian in the life of the church. There are things that we do that actually are antithetical to our claim. This is one of those things. So let's begin reading together, James chapter 2, or let's begin, pick it up with verse 26 of chapter 1, because it's a contextual flow. Again, the chapter breaks are there for our benefit, but sometimes they work against our understanding because 2 is connected to the end of 1. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, now that's real worship. That's not just the form of it. That's the reality of it. And you think you're a true worshiper, God-fearer, and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart. This man's religion, his claim, is worthless. It's empty. It's vain. So failing to control your tongue is an evidence that whatever your mouth is saying about your status before God, it is self-deception. You can't have an unbridled tongue and be a real Christian. That's the point. Verse 27, this is axiomatic truth, pure and undefiled religion, pristine and pure in the eyes of our Maker, in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Care portal is what we just heard about. This is meant to be an opportunity to express pure and undefiled religion because that means you're ministering to the most vulnerable and the most helpless, to visit orphans and widows in their distress They're pressed and pressured. They're at the point of breaking, and you provide support. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. So real Christianity is visiting the vulnerable, helping the helpless, and staying unstained. You not only have a heart of compassionate charity, you have a commitment to personal purity. Verse 1, chapter 2. Here's an expression of being stained by the world. Here's an illustration of it, which is often common in the life of the church, certainly in this early church. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. 
Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thou shalt not display personal favoritism. James begins with a passionate prohibition. He continues with a pitiful picture that illustrates what he is prohibiting, what he's concerned about. And then he articulates what I'm going to call a a perverse pursuit that sits behind the engine of preferential treatment, personal favoritism. Let's follow together as we work our way through this text. What a real Christian does not do ever and why they should not do it. That's the claim and the statement and the big idea. Let's begin with the passionate prohibition. There are two emphatic flavors in verse 1. The one, the first one, is the word glory. In your text here, adjectival glorious. It is an emphatic word at the end of the verse in the original language meant to highlight a priority to pay attention to. An issue at stake when you hold your faith with personal favoritism. The other emphatic is the word stop. Literally, this is stop holding your faith with personal favoritism. This is a, hey, stop it. It's what you would do with your children when they're stepping the line, when they're out of order. They're behaving in a way, speaking in a way. This is what you do when you see someone doing something that is absolutely unacceptable. This is a preacher saying, stop this. It's a present active imperative verb with a big X over it. You're doing it. I want you to stop it. I want you to stop it now. This is a big deal. And it's a big deal because it affects how your faith is perceived as it relates to the reflection of who Jesus Christ is. Stop holding your faith, possessing it, displaying it with an attitude of personal favoritism because the Lord Jesus is the Lord of literally the glory. 
I know in the New American Standard, my translation, and maybe yours, it says, glorious Lord Jesus. That's not unfair. It's an adjectival attachment to Jesus. He is glorious. But technically, this verse is meant to emphasize not a characteristic of him, but an identity that he possesses as the glory of God in vivid color, in living color, in reality. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Listen to this. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was the vivid, exact, Hebrews 2, or the Hebrews chapter 1, rather, the exact representation of the radiance of the glory of God. The reason you need to stop this is because it's incompatible with the reflection of the one who deserves glory that accurately reflects who God is. God has a glory. God has perfections and attributes that when they are seen, you experience and ex- that, they, that you experience it and God expresses the glory that is uniquely His. And when you hold your faith this way, you diminish that glory. That's why he says, stop it. Long, long time ago, do do anybody remember the devotional, Our Daily Bread? Does anybody use that anymore? Oh, you do. I have not seen it in a long, long time, but the church I grew up in used to give them out. Our Daily Bread. Did I say it wrong? Yeah, yeah. I remember reading in there a story about Mahatma Gandhi, who, according to this record in the devotional, had expressed an interest in Christianity. The Hindu system, and at that time, 100 million in the Hindu caste system were considered untouchables. The untouchables, they couldn't even draw water lest they would pollute the water by nature of the caste, the social status that they had. They got scavenger jobs. They worked at the crematory. They, they got the worst of the worst. And Gandhi was concerned about the disparity in the social system in India, and he had been exposed to the Gospels. And he was attracted to Christianity because of the potential it would have to break down this entrenched system of social status, the way you treated one another, the way you treated people in that culture. So he went to a missionary church. And he said that when he attended that church, having been moved by the Gospels, and he thought that Christianity would offer a solution to the caste system, when he came to worship at that church, he was told by those who were at the door, you go and worship with your own people, end quote. And the devotional book spoke of really the passage that we're looking at of the power and misrepresentation that impartiality, prejudice, personal favoritism can have on the glory of the gospel and the accurate reflection of who God is. 
Personal favoritism, maybe respect of persons, if you see it in the King James, partiality in some of your translations. It's the Greek, Greek word prosopolempsia. It's a compound word. It's two words put together, kind of giving you the heart and flavor of the word. One of those words is face, face. The other word is receive. Literally, it means to receive someone by face. To accept or receive someone based on face value or by outward appearance. It's prejudging someone's value or worth by outward appearance. We could call this prejudice. An outward assessment, a judgment or opinion formed before the facts are known purely based on what you see, external criteria. It is considered a preconceived, unreasonable judgment, an inclination to favor a person or dislike a person based on outward criteria. Let me give you Harry's definition. Personal favoritism, partiality, prejudice means to assess, evaluate, and base your treatment and attitude toward a person or a people group on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. And doing so, key words, because you believe you can benefit from them or because you believe you can't. So you evaluate, you assess, you measure somebody, you receive them by face, you weigh it out, and you draw conclusions prematurely, and the engine of that is how I can benefit based on what I perceive, how I will treat them, or the idea that, hey, they don't have anything to offer me by way of face value, so I will treat them or fail to treat them in a particular way way. This is a passionate prohibition. Stop it. Let me give you an illustration of prejudice in a nutshell. This is uh, John Scott Eldon, Lord Chancellor of England. If you're the Lord Chancellor of England, you're in charge of the judiciary. You're the chief person appointed by the sovereign, the crown, to be the head of the legal system in England. And one afternoon, John Scott Eldon, Chancellor of England, was making his closing argument for a case that he was trying, and he noticed after an extended period of time of oratory that in the jury box there were 11 jurors when there were supposed to be 12. So he stopped and he went to the foreman of the jury and he says, where is the 12th juror? To which the foreman replied, please, my Lord, he was called away by an urgent message just after lunch, but it's okay because he's already given his verdict to me. (laughs) Now this is partiality, personal favoritism, and prejudice In an illustration, you cast your ballot too early. That's the practice that's denied. Now, I want you to consider the illustration that James uses, and I'm going to call it a pathetic picture. It's pitiful. 
It's not the only way this gets expressed, but it was a way it was being expressed to the people group that James was writing. Here's the illustration that he gives to give color and clarity to the nature of partiality. For if a man comes, that's a kind of a tense of a verb, which is the first timer. It's called a momentary historical heiress. He just happens to show up. He's not there every week. And he comes into your assembly, and he's got a gold ring, and he's dressed in fine clothes. Gold ring, literally, he's a gold-ringed or a gold-fingered man. Implication is he may have lots of rings. Gold rings were a sign of obvious wealth in that culture, so he had financial horsepower. It'd be like wearing a Rolex in our culture. You wear a Rolex, there's a high probability that you have assets. You're in fine apparel, fine meaning bright, shiny. In our language, designer clothes. Names that uh, would require a good bit of cost to own those clothes with those fashionable labels. That guy comes in and... Verse 2, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, literally vile, work clothes, dirty, soiled. And you pay special attention, verse 3, you, you eye them up. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've bought a few cars over the years. It's amazing how different the salesman will treat me if I look like this or if I've just come from yard work. I've been in car dealerships seriously interested in buying a car and gotten zero interest from anybody looking plain. And the nicer the car, the less interest they have unless you look like you have the horsepower to make a deal. It's that idea. You pay special attention. You look somebody over. You assess them. You evaluate on the exterior, external criteria, and you pay special attention to them. You say, in this case, the illustration, which is pitiful and pathetic in my view, you pay special attention to the newcomer who's in the designer clothes with the gold rings, and you tell them, you go sit here in a good place. We would say the VIP seats, the most comfortable seats, the most prestigious seats. Wherever the best seat in the house is, you come sit there. And you say, by way of illustration, to the poor man, you stand over there. In other words, there is no seat for you. Or if you're going to be seated, you sit at my feet. The cheap seats. You go up into the rafters, and if there is no seat in the rafters, you stand at the back or you sit on the floor. The illustration is basically that of saying you are treating people favorably or unfavorably based on outward criteria. The rich man, the perceived man with assets and capacity, you give him preferential treatment, and the poor man, you dishonor him because of no other reason than the outward appearance of their social or material potential, and their perception of such treatment as to what it would gain or what it would cost. 
You know what that is? That's pathetic. To measure a man or a woman based on those criteria is pitiful for a Christian. It's alien to the ways God measures people. And it's contradictory to the realities of reality, which is the problem with it, which we're going to endeavor to unpack. And you may say, man, that's awful. Wouldn't that be awful? Somebody came into our group today and they had the, the look, they had the reputation, they might have a title. They may be somebody, and we make sure they have a good spot, and we literally ignore the person who has no appearance of potential or power or prestige. If that happened in Cornerstone, would you be proud or ashamed? Well, you know the answer to that. You'd be ashamed. That's pathetic. We would know better than that, and that's awful. And everybody would agree, amen? Who would say that's okay? And yet, this is an illustration of what happens often in our culture and even among Christians, whereby we make distinctions based on profession, vocation, somebody's dress, somebody's religion, somebody's language. I rode home last night. I got back from Houston late last night, Ubered from Burbank, and I rode with Sargis, who happened to be an Armenian. And... Uh, I said, how do you like Ubering? He said, I hate it. I said, really? That's not normally what I hear. Actually, I asked him, how do you like the Prius? Because everybody who Ubers seems to have a Prius. And I have no interest in a Prius, but I'm trying. I'm trying to value that. It's ugly. It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, who would buy a Prius? Anybody? I'm sorry. But I'm trying. I asked I ask that when I landed in Atlanta on Thursday, I got a Prius. And uh, the Uber guy was a Prius person, and he had 250000 I said, how do you like it? Oh, I love it. I said, why do you love it? Oh, it lasts. I've heard he, I get great gas mileage. Well, Sargis, he said, I hate my Prius. I said, what year is it? 2014? How many miles? 207,000 miles. I said, why do you hate it? He says, it, well, it's so not reliable. It's the worst car I've ever had. I was feeling better because that was my assessment going in. <laughs> I said, so how do you like Ubering? I hate Ubering. I've been driving for 20 years, limousine driver, bus driver, party bus driver. Now I'm driving for Uber. I said, well, what do you hate about it? He said, the way people treat me. I said, what, what do they not like about you? My accent. It was a kind of a heavy Armenian accent. You, it wasn't clean and polished English. He said, yeah, they mock me, particularly the younger generation. Make fun of me. He said, I speak five languages. They can hardly speak one. I... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just surprising how in our culture we can discriminate, and we do it fast, whether we're selling cars or how we treat somebody who's taking care of us. We measure by looks, handsome or not so handsome, pretty, not so pretty, clothes, wealth, where they live, what neighborhood they're from, car they drive, somebody they know. 
And subtly, if not obviously, our behavior towards them gets adjusted by our perception of their value. And here's the ugly part, verse 4, and our motivation, which is what can I extract for them from them? Or since I can't, I won't make the effort. Look at verse 4. Have you not made distinctions? Now, the word distinction means you assess, you evaluate, and you discriminate. Literally means to discriminate. You, you weigh it out. Uh, uh, you assess it. You make a distinction. I'll treat them well. I won't treat them well. I'll ignore them. This is what you're doing, James says, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Here's the principle that I'm going to call a, a perverse pursuit, the underlying principle of prejudice. You treat people based on exterior criteria with an eye towards what you can extract from them or you abandon treating them well because of the perception they have nothing to offer me. The word literally means I face both ways. And I take that to mean this whole idea of distinctions is I look at them from a spiritual perspective and I recognize they have value. I look at them from a natural human perspective, a social perspective, a material perspective, and I consider them of unworthy of seeing or showing value. Here's my question for you. Do you classify people in your mind not according to their real spiritual worth, but according to their outward physical appearance or your perception of their prestige? James says, if you do, you've become judges. Let me just say a word about judges. There is one lawgiver and judge, James chapter 4, verse 12. It is not you. There is one lawgiver and judge, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all judgment has been given. God has entrusted John 5.22, all judgment to the Son. Hebrews 12.23, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men. Definite article, the judge of all men. There's only one. That one is Jesus Christ who has received that judge, that uh, trust from the Father. And so when you usurp his position, you violate his honor. And it is with evil motives. The word evil, poneros, means dark. And it comes from a word which means painful. So when you do this kind of evil and dark behavior, you have these kind of motivations. It's perverse and it produces pain. It will ultimately be painful for you, but if you're the recipient of prejudice, personal favoritism, you're the person who doesn't get noticed, injurious, absolutely. You ever had somebody value you on face value, and it didn't go well. Once upon a time, I played midget football. 11 years old, going from one team to the new team. My best friend played for the new team. I wore glasses. 
before contact lenses, there were glasses. I couldn't see without my glasses. My father had bought me unbreakable glasses because I snapped them in the middle. I snapped the leg. Any way you could snap glasses, Harry snapped them. So I had these black, rubberized glasses. I was a handsome piece of work. I was skinny. I had short hair and wide ears. I was Poindexter. You know, the little, the rascals. So I show up, middle linebacker for the Franklin Township Black Knights, Joe Shipsky. He was everything Harry wasn't by way of perceived athletic prowess. From the time I walked on the practice field, was introduced as the new player from a neighboring township, Joe Shipsky mocked Harry Walls. He's the one who gave me the name Poindexter. Had all kinds of words that he assessed me by. I'm the new guy. Anybody want to guess how that made me feel? That was hurtful. I didn't do anything. I just showed up. Yeah, I had my glasses on. I wasn't going to win any awards for the best-looking guy on the team. Assessed me. Treated me based on that assessment. You know what that was for me? Painful. When they handed me the ball, I made sure Joe Shipsky had an opportunity to make good on his thoughts about my athleticism or lack thereof. After I ran him over a few times and ran around him a few times, he changed the nickname. His opinion of me changed. He knew nothing about me initially. He adjusted his, his attitude towards me eventually when he realized, hey, you can look like a nerd and still play football. <laughs> you ever been through that kind of thing? You get looked over, you get treated a particular way, all based on a perception that you can't control. You know what James says? You need to stop that because that's a perverse pursuit that produces pain. That's evil motives. Can you imagine being a Christian, a claimer, somebody who says, I have faith, and a, and a pastor walks up and says, you know what? You have perverse motives. That's strong language. This is a passionate prohibition that says, you can't do this. And there's a problem with this partiality, which is what he continues to do, why you can't do this. So we just talked about what a Christian does not do and why they should not do it is what the rest of this passage speaks about. Let me tell you why you can't do this. Now, there are five things, and we'll jump in today, and we'll see how far we get to go. Let me give you the five. The reason you can't do this, number one, is you'll have a theological problem. You'll have a God problem. Two, there's a logical problem if you show partiality and personal favoritism and display present prejudice. Verses 6 and 7, you'll have a legal problem. You'll be in jeopardy with the royal law, 8 through 
11. And then finally, you'll have an eternal problem. Verses 12 and 13. Thou shalt not show personal preference based on external criteria with an eye to get something or because you perceive you can't get something, you don't give anything. The problem of partiality. It's a theological problem. Let me state it this way. Here's why it's a God problem. Because God doesn't do it, and God doesn't like it, and He forbids it. It's in contradiction, and it is inconsistent with who God is and what God does. Prejudice is inconsistent with the nature of God whose glory you're meant to represent, and it's inconsistent with the methods of God. He doesn't treat anybody based on that. God is impartial. Turn over to Romans chapter 2, and let me just give you some highlights to, to mark in your mind. Because the theological problem is going to lead to the biggest problem of all. You deny the glory God deserves and desires. It's ultimately what's called a doxological problem. Glory is doxa. You deface, diminish, and demean the glory that is God's. When you hold your faith with personal favoritism, your faith in the Lord Jesus, He's the Lord of the glory. Everything is for the glory of God, the display of God, the honor of God. Ephesians chapter 1, elect before the foundation of the world to the praise of His glory. You're the receiver of an inheritance. The guaranteed finished work of God, Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of His glory. You were formed for His glory, Isaiah 43, 7. Everything we are as a creature, and certainly a Christian redeemed, is to be a reflection of who God is and how God is. And personal favoritism is a contradiction. Verse 9, chapter 2, Romans. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first, because they had the law given to them and the privileges of the revelation of God, the Jew first, proton, it's just first in priority, and also of the Greek but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Now look at verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. Doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter what side of the tracks you're from. When it comes to the business of reward and consequence, there is no partiality as it relates to judgment and justice, as it relates to race, there is no favoritism. Acts chapter 10, flip over there. Acts chapter 10, illustration, a vivid illustration. This is Peter in the initial days of the outworking of the gospel in the early church. Peter learns a lesson, a vivid lesson. Remember, he's, he's in a trance. He's, he receives a vision, this 
sheet, four-cornered sheet comes down, and it's got all kinds of animals and creatures on it, the, and it happens three times, and it's meant to communicate that there's nothing unclean. And Peter's about to receive guests from Cornelius, a centurion who's been instructed by God to go find Peter and bring Peter to his house so that Cornelius, a godly man, not a Jew, can hear the gospel that Peter knows that Cornelius needs. And Peter has this vision in preparation, and so Cornelius, in obedience, sends men to find Peter. Verse 28, chapter 10, And he said to them, this is Peter talking, You yourselves know that when, when the men come, they talk with Peter, they enter and they find him in the house, verse 28, and he said to them, this is Peter coming to the house of Cornelius, watch this, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's the purpose of the vision. And then he concludes, for the sake of time, verse 34, with the declaration, verse 34, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. For in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God doesn't care about the race. God doesn't care about the skin color. God doesn't care about the social status. There is no partiality with God. There's no discrimination based on race or career or social status. You have Ephesians chapter 6. Here's Paul's statement to the masters. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Now, contextually, that means you have social status, you're in control, you have authority, you're the master, he's the slave. There's no favoritism with God don't show favoritism yourself. Remember when Paul was transformed by the gospel, he goes in Galatians chapter 2, he goes to Jerusalem to communicate the gospel and to meet those who had been gifted the good news initially, the apostles. This is what he says when he refers to the source of his spiritual influence. Remember, he was in the desert three years. He had heard from heaven. He had gotten his revelation from the Lord himself. He's coming to Jerusalem to, to validate it, affirm it, to communicate it. And he says something very interesting in Galatians 2.6. As he's coming to get affirmation from the early leaders of the church, he makes this statement about those men of influence in the early church. I'm going to call this spiritual status. But from those, this is Galatians 2.6, but from those who were of high reputation. And then he says this, and what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. But some of them were of high reputation, 
besides those who were of reputation, they contributed nothing to me. I, 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 I didn't assess them and elevate them or put them on a platform or give them status because they were somebody spiritually. And you know what he's talking about? He's talking about James. He's talking about the early leaders of the church. He's talking about apostles. He's talking about spiritual somebodies. And he's saying, listen, I'm coming up and I'm respecting them, but I'm not elevating them and putting one above the other based on that status because their reputation spiritually, that doesn't matter to me because there's no partiality with God. There's no celebrity with God. We tend to elevate Christians based on perceived giftedness, and there's a right thing about honoring faithful men and women. But there's something really wrong with celebrating them in a way that gives distinctive treatment over someone who doesn't enjoy that status or celebrity. God doesn't measure them that way. Here it is, bottom line, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. You'll remember, Samuel, go find the guy that I have made king over Israel. Anoint him and This is Samuel going to the home of David, meets Jesse, sees all of his brothers. I don't know if you remember this. In chapter 16, Samuel does what we do. Hey, that's a good-looking guy. He looks like king material. No, it's not him. Maybe it's this guy. No, it's not him. And then God makes this statement. The Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. When you show personal favoritism, you contradict who God is. And what is a Christian supposed to do? Reveal who God is. Let people see the good works. Let people see your behavior, your attitudes, and your actions so that they can glorify your Father in heaven. Partiality violates that. And go back to James. And I'll punctuate one more thing as it relates to this theological problem. Besides that, verse 4 By the way, the word listen at the beginning of verse 5. Hey, pay attention. It's the word hearken. Listen up. So I've got this passionate prohibition, and I'm going to punctuate it with something you better hear. Not only does partiality misrepresent God, who he is, how he is, but the methods he deploys. Notice verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in the sphere of faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Hey, you're mistreating the poor guy when God has chosen the poor guy. Now, it's not everybody in the kingdom is a poor person. But many are. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.26. Paul says this, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God chose the lesser. Why are you not valuing those God chose? Why would you elevate someone based on this when in fact you ought to be honoring this? We put down the poor and destitute, those who are not as blessed as we are, whereas God exalts them. That's the point of chapter 1, verse 9. So whether it's race, whether it's career, whether it's social status, whether it's spiritual status, God behaves in a way, Galatians 3, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all common and united. Stop showing partiality based on the stuff that doesn't matter. It violates God. It misrepresents God. You're to be a lunar Christian. That is, you're the moon reflecting the sun. You're not to eclipse the sun with your non-God-like and God-honoring behavior or attitudes. You're to reveal Him through that. How you treat someone as a Christian, matters. No matter their skin color, no matter their social status. Look, we do that. Hey, you can't date my daughter. You're ex. You're from a different culture. You have a additional social status. Well, you can do that in the culture. You can't do that as a Christian. You don't make enough. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Stop it. Because when you do it, you misrepresent God. And that is not okay. That's a theological problem. It contradicts his methods and his nature. And it demeans his glory. If that makes sense, would you say amen? So here's the question for you. How do you do that? Because here's my suspicion. I don't do that. I've never done that. That's pitiful. I want you to think about and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you the way you receive people by face. And you adjust your behavior based on your perception of what they have to offer or what they don't. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to open the Bible. And Lord, we don't want to misrepresent the gospel. We don't want some potential come to the place of worship and the message of the gospel and be rejected because of perceptions that we have. We want to welcome all. We want to treat all with honor and dignity because they are made by God and they are made in the image of God. They have value before God and we want to treat them as men and women of value. Lord Jesus Christ was considered credible even by his enemies when they said, you tell the truth, you don't prefer any man. 
You're impartial in your words. You're impartial in your judgments. You don't discriminate. You tell the truth. Help us to be men and women who live in such a way that causes those around us to say they're truth tellers. They're gospel advocates and ambassadors because they not only represent God well, they represent the gospel well. Help us to be alert to the ways that contradict our claim. Lord, I ask this for us all today. In Jesus' name, amen.